I don't think we've yet cracked the question of how do we as an individual leader in public service contribute to that purpose. So what tends to happen is we get hired into a job, let's say in a government somewhere, civil service, and we almost assume we're like a robot who's there to fulfill the purpose of the government department or division we're working for, a ministry or whatever. The challenge, though, I think is in today's world, especially with younger workers, we ourselves want to feel a sense of a personal mission statement. And by that, you know, um, what is our own North Star? Hello, this is Books Driving Change with me, Matthew Bishop. And today I'm talking with Shirath Jeevan, who is the author of Intrinsic, a manifesto to reignite our inner drive. Shirath's a social entrepreneur who came out of the business world, consulting world, and, and helped launch Stir Education, which is an organization that helps teachers improve their performance through their better motivation and sharing of insights. You can elaborate on that um, in many countries, including India and Indonesia and some parts of Africa, um, and now runs Intrinsic Labs, um, which you'll talk a bit about as well, I hope. The audience for this show, Shirath, is people who are you know, conscious of the, the, this crisis that we've been living through in the pandemic, you know, has, has revealed a need for greater public service to re-engage people with talent and 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 insight and leadership capacity into the public realm of public service and i wondered if you could say in a sentence for them you know why they should read your book thanks matthew real pleasure to be on the on the show and i think it's so important for those of us leading change in public service to to know what deeply motivates ourselves as individuals and leaders and that idea of really trying to find lasting motivation for the from within for ourselves really with a view that can help us motivate the people around us, of course, our teams, if we've got teams in our work, but also, of course, the citizens that our work is ultimately geared towards. And I think that applies whether we're public servants or we're political leaders or trying to affect change to being in the social sector or non-profit sector, et cetera. Um, these are universal themes the book talks about. I think in the book you set out in a powerful way, you know, a number of the trends that have caused many people to, I guess, lose touch with what it is that motivates them from within and to, to be driven by external factors, what you call extrinsic. And to the extent that you really feel there's a, a huge crisis really in the world of, of a loss of connection with ourselves, um, and that's underlying many of the issues that you know emerge all over the place in different aspects of how life is, is proving dysfunctional in, in many parts of the world. But could you just spell that out for us? What is the key problem that you think we need to solve at this point and that Intrinsic is setting out to solve as a book? Yes, Matthew, I think it's moving our dial, that motivational dial from extrinsic or external factors. So, for example, in the world of work, we would think a lot about pay, about status, how fancy our job title is, how fancy our office is, for example. These are critical things, and we're not saying they're not important. Um, many people well, don't have them. We need to make sure they do. But for those of us who do have those, um, they have a diminishing effect over time, almost a ceiling effect. I was talking to a trader in the city of London who got a 20 million, sorry, £21.5 million bonus for the year. And his first reaction when his boss told him the news was that, you know, I, um, I heard, uh, I've got to work harder because I, I know that my, um, you know, someone else down the corridor uh, got twenty, um, you know, got more than me, for example. So that idea that you know there's never enough in some of these things, and we can keep chasing these and chasing them, it won't give us fulfillment, happiness, and 
actually won't give us success in the longer term either. What we've got to do is move that motivational dial inwards to thinking about how we can really do what we do, particularly in public service, because it's genuinely fulfilling, motivating and rewarding. It's a bit like driving an electric car compared to a um, a car driving on, on heavy diesel. And it should feel enjoyable in its own right. And we know the key pillars of intrinsic motivation around purpose, that sense of how work helps and serves others. Autonomy, that sense of us being in control of our destiny as public um, public leaders. And finally, at master of becoming a better and better leader over time. We never get to perfection, but we're getting and developing and growing. So purpose, autonomy, and mastery are key to us really moving that dial inwards. Um, and we know that's much more likely to lead us to be happy, fulfilled, and successful. I think one of the things you do very well in the book is you know, marshal a lot of academic research that's supportive of, of your uh, you know, claim on, on, on intrinsic motivation. And you know, I think maybe purpose in particular has become one of those buzzwords that I think everyone is, is, is talking about. A lot of company leaders, a lot of political people are saying we need to have purpose clear and everything. Just what is the evidence that um, you know, purpose matters and can be a game changer? And, you know, I, I, with a slightly cynical hat on, you know, how do we tell real purpose, real change-making purpose from sort of bullshit PR purpose that a lot of people might be inclined to say if they're in... <laughs> And the pressure in these leadership roles at the moment to want to try and sign sound appealing to millennials. I think that that I think you put the nail right in the head, Matthew. That a lot of the problems we're having with this purpose discussion is that it has been you know, taken in this PR sort of territory, and you know, thousands of staff are subjected to these kind of corporate workshops or government workshops where they're bombarded with purpose statements from the company and so on. I, what I tried to look at in purpose was was look at that really simple definition. I was trying to define it from first principles around just how what we do helps and serves others. You know, it takes away all the airy-fairy language and so on. The challenge, I think, is that actually organizations are getting better and better, to be absolutely fair, on defining organizational purpose, why that company or how it helps and serves others. I don't think we've yet cracked the question of how do we as an individual leader in public service contribute to that purpose. So what tends to happen is we get hired into a job, let's say in a government somewhere, civil service, and we almost assume we're like a robot who's there to fulfill the purpose of the government department or division we're working for, a ministry or whatever. The challenge, though, I think, is in today's world, especially with younger workers, we ourselves want to feel a sense of a personal mission statement. And by that, you know, um, what is our own North Star? Let me just give you mine as an example. I help organizations and leaders to reignite in a drive by writing, coaching, and consulting. So I help individuals and, and leaders, uh, sorry, organizations and leaders to reignite in a drive by writing, coaching, consulting. Just a very, very simple 15-word statement, but it's a really helpful North staff for me to remember why I'm doing what I do. And if I join an organization, I, I work for myself now, but if I do, or I consult to one, as you mentioned, the question I'm asking is how, um, how am I contributing to that organization's purpose statement, but also how are they contributing to mine? How are they helping me achieve mine? And when I think both things are in harmony, we've got a great marriage between employee and an organization. I think we have a great motivational deal in place. But the temptation is we tend to forget the individual and forget that we all need that for ourselves as much as we need it for our, our organizations. And then you also talk about autonomy and mastery. So let's, let's talk a bit about what's the key issue today with autonomy and what do you mean by that? 
if you look at political life today, I'd argue we're in a really difficult autonomy situation, Matthew, where we've got two extremes. We've got sort of, you know, I talked about, looked at some of the research in the book about political leadership, where you can have the extreme inside the US, um, you know, perhaps both houses, where it's almost like individual lawmakers are like, um, you know, I talk about gas molecules in a chamber that kind of complete their own people. It's Clint Eastwood extreme, if you like, Lone Ranger type behavior. But the other extreme where you're, you know, basically the MPs are, often, I think in our country, in the UK, are, are, um, are often micromanaged and, and dealt with. And how do you have the right balance between these two things is important. You need enough autonomy to feel you can, you're representing a genuine community or constituency if you're elected office. But also, you also need to make sure that you are adhering to the broad direction of the party that you um, uh, were, you know, have been elected to join as well. How do you find that balancing act? That's a key piece. So it can't be either extreme. It can't be micromanagement nor can it be complete free-for-all. How do you negotiate that to me as a key idea in the book as well? But it, 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 one of the things you generally observe is that people are not feeling very much autonomy at work at the moment in, in that sense. Absolutely, Matthew. So I think I was talking, for example, at, um, about teachers in the book, and you know, we have record numbers of teachers leaving every, uh, every month. In the US, it's often 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 teachers a month to leave the profession. In the UK, 40% of teachers want to leave. A lot of that is because it's not because they don't enjoy teaching anymore. It's because they they feel like they don't have they're being micromanaged, and their head teachers, their leaders in their, the school system are asking, "What would Ofsted say?" Rather than, "What's the right thing to do for my school, my community?" So they feel often like a, a pawn on a very big chessboard and unable to exert their own professional judgment and discretion. And that's a really killer killer blow for motivation. And that's the problem across government, do you find in particular? Or? I think very much so. So I spent quite a lot of time talking to lawmakers in, in all, a lot of different countries, in the, in the emerging world and the developed world. And that sense of them not being able to con, you know, control their own destiny, feeling, you know, for example, many of them wanted to um, be in the sort of one nation tradition where they really were genuinely supporting the whole country. They feel more and more like they're being held to factions as well. Yeah. And... Uh, Mastery is the third concept. So you have purpose, autonomy, and mastery. I mean, in some ways, and I think you you do address this head on in the book. I mean, specialization has been a huge theme uh, to the extent that we now have lots of books about how dangerous silos are and so forth, because we've all become so specialist we don't you know, we don't really know how to reach out across silos and think in, in a joined up way um, in decision making. But what do you mean by mastery? You mean something very different to that. I told Matthew in the book about the 10,000 hour rule and this idea that, you know, a lot of the mastery discussions have been about technical prowess, as you mentioned. And there's a lot of evidence that's true in technical domains, but a lot of the future of a lot of the modern jobs today, they thrive because of the human skills. And I'll give you a civil servant, for example, yes, you've got to know how to develop policy and legislation, but You've also got to know how to influence ministers, how to work with colleagues, how to work with different kinds of disciplines. I look at the COVID response, for example. Those human skills are much harder to subject to simple 10,000-hour rules and so on as well. It's much more of the broader human aspects of our work. And so how do we codify those, what I call in the book, the broader essentials of mastery, and try to make them something we actually actively want to work on and become better and better on? There are often things that are actually not on a public servant's job description. They actually are the magic of the job these days. And how do you make them explicit? How do you codify them? And how do you find a systematic way of improving them 
and also finding people who can nurture you in those skills as you progress in your careers as well. So give us a, an example of you know, where you would see a different approach, where you've seen a different approach be applied that's really touched, you know, moved, moved it away from that sort of 10,000-hour rule approach to something more um, holistic. Yeah, so I mean, to give an example of my own life with still education, for example. So I had, um, you know, a, a finance director who was fantastic, and she was really, really good at, at, at you know, uh, making sure we had you know, good, reliable management accounts every month, et cetera. The challenge is that as we became bigger as an organization, that actually a lot of her role was shifting from that technical aspect, which she was very comfortable in. She trained as a, a chartered, uh, you know, um, qualified accountant and so on. It had to be about actually influencing our staff running our program with teachers to spend money better, to know how to use resources better, to make sure they felt more comfortable um, in terms of uh, financial literacy and, and be able to use the numbers themselves to make intelligent decisions. So we did a lot to try and break barriers down. And simple things like she, where she sat in the office. Often you know, finance tends to have their own little cubicle or room because they feel that what they've got is confidential information. So actually, why don't you rotate around the office every day, every week, so that you meet different colleagues, you can talk to them, see their reality. She spent many days in the field with schools, seeing the work on the ground. And she realized a lot of the processes that we had at the time might be actually um, uh, hindering progress, if you like, as well. So it's trying to break down silos and help, you know, back that personal mission statement. If you think my role at the purpose level is to produce management accounts on time and accurately, that's one purpose statement. If it's to help the organization as a whole make better decisions, that's a different one. So how do you try and break some of the traditional um, ways of thinking down to open up jobs in public service and make them more fulfilling and motivating? And you, you talked about stir. Education and, and the book opens with this you know, inspiring story and, and how you were surprised, in a sense, by the appeal of, of the message. Can you just talk a bit about what happened and why, you know, why that's given you hope? And, and have you seen other examples since? Yeah, so, you know, to be honest, I, I, didn't, I got into this whole area by accident. I'm an economist by background. Um, at the end, um, you know, I, I was very much someone who believed in the hard skills of life around you know, finance or economics and so on. Um, I think what happened is, you know, starting off in the slums of Delhi, we were trying to find some great teaching ideas to be to be shared around the world. But by looking for the ideas in some of the poorest parts of the world, we unlocked huge pride and a sense by teachers the first time their ideas mattered and they were actually important people in their own right. And they enjoyed meeting each other and sharing ideas and that buzz of, of energy and would sort of almost by accident, I didn't even know what these terms meant at the time, but we're unlocking purpose, autonomy, and mastery almost as a, as a byproduct of what we were doing. We realized we'd confuse the baby in the bathwater. Actually, the magic was that, that ignition of teachers, that, that reigniting of motivation. And that really shifted my view of the world. Um, I now work for a range of organizations as, a, as an advisor, you know, from L'Oreal to the Kenyan government. But that core idea that actually everyone goes into a job, I think especially in public service, with a high degree of intrinsic motivation, as had these teachers. But as, as we work longer and longer, the cultures around us tend to drag it out of us. And the, the trick is how to, to keep ourselves motivated despite that at the individual level. But if we're leaders in public service, how do we create cultures that build on that intrinsic motivation and make us feel more and more motivated rather than taking away that energy over time? And I think the experience of teachers 
you know, in many parts of the world is similar. You know, people that were idealistic when they went into the profession and then they've just been worn down really by the, the engagement with the bureaucracy, particularly, as you say, that the Ofsted-like factors of just being forced to do more and more testing and feeling you're just a pawn uh, on the chessboard. And I guess, you know, one of the things that's sort of motivating us at driving change is that, that seems to be an issue with public service in general, that people, they'd like to be idealistic about serving the public interest and, and serving their communities, but government in particular is so unappealing because it it just feels like you're, you know, in all sorts of different ways, it's not going to be a good intrinsic, fulfilling experience. I mean, is as you've, as you've tried to help, you know, professionals like teachers, I think the police as well, um, and maybe other government, other aspects of government, have, have you found ways to to shift the system so that it, um, you know, your idealism doesn't get handed in at the door? Yeah, and a, a whole chapter in the book, Matthew, uh, you know, as you know, is, is on public service and political life as well, because it, the, our leaders are so important, as we're seeing in Ukraine now, as you saw the, the pandemic of these last couple of years. So, I was just seeing, uh, reading Tony Blair commenting on how so how he wouldn't have gone into politics today, given the levels of scrutiny that you know the, the trolling on social media, all these kinds of um, crazy pressures. And some people would say that was a good thing. But whatever your yeah, whether it was him or not, but I think just more generally, a lot of mm. people, you know, our brightest people, often, as you said, don't think of public service first. They should do. And um, one of the things I think that we could try to do is to create a more motivating environment for would-be um, politicians. And I'm doing some work with Apolitical and UCL around this, actually a fascinating little piece of work. And one of the things, for example, take the purpose piece, this idea of our work as a legislator or a lawmaker helping and serving others. A lot of people I spoke to in, in many houses of parliament around the world feel that the idea of a one-nation idea, that you know, you're there to help the whole country, that's been lost by factionalism. And one of the ideas I explored in the book is how can we all try to create back a sense of genuine national purpose that is genuinely across divides and across political parties and focuses on what unites us more than what divides us. I was looking at Kennedy in the book and you know some of the things he was doing many years ago, but how can we try and find that common ground and, and start resist that temptation to exacerbate differences because it scores points, really? Um, that sense of autonomy, again, that... You know, I was talking to, to to ministers in various governments, including the UK, where they told me they heard about major policy announcements by what came on the news headlines, um, often secondhand, and they were the second people to know. And that obviously became ridiculous during the, the pandemic, where lockdown, you know, changes were being leaked to the press before MPs had a chance to even look at them. And that makes a mockery of parliamentary processes and demotivates ministers and MPs more widely. So, you know, I think one of the things we can do as leaders, we've tended to, because of the accountability pressures and the scrutiny, prime ministers, presidents, et cetera, they've tended to create kitchen cabinets, right? Where you basically have five people in a room, let's say, look at the UK, you pretty much decide everything in the country. We have about 100 ministers in the country right now, and let's take the UK, all very you know, sensible, talented people. How do we harness their strengths and play to that broader narrative and, 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 and group there as another kind of part of the autonomy side. And mastery, you know, I was talking to people, for example, in the House of Lords in the UK who got in, um, in the chamber, they were shown how to use the to where the toilets were, they were shown how to get to the dispatch box, not much more, to be honest. And 
you know, we would never allow doctors or lawyers or accountants to be trained this way. Um, I've been talking to the Institute of Government in the UK, which does some training for ministers, in it, which is fantastic, but it's not compulsory. It's very ad hoc. And this is a real job. I mean, this is a very, very difficult and demanding role. We need to develop more formal mechanisms and mastery that allow more, more peer learning, more discussion, more sharing of experiences, as well as more formal training to help develop our elected leaders as well. And would you apply the same framework to civil servants as well and people going in and you know, in other parts of public service, not as elected officials, but as building a career? I think they're very, very similar uh, pieces there. I think one of the things that's interesting with purpose for civil servants is that, you know, I talked to many senior civil servants in, in the British government, for example, you obviously have to be somewhat politically, almost to, to sort of not detach yourself, but accept that, that the party in power may not be, have the same views that you have as an individual. But your job is to make sure that the direction they, they're elected on is executed as well as possible. That's an interesting purpose question because there is that interesting tension between personal purpose and, and what the role may require sometimes. But the, the civil servants I've talked to there, they really are able to say, well, whether or not I agree with this, I've been able to really make sure that the, the needs of my country are, are put into action you know, in terms of that piece. That's been interesting. I think, uh, again, with the autonomy side in civil service, there's a lot of scrutiny and it's very easy to lose your job in civil service if you do something wrong. So there tends to be a little bit of guardedness sometimes. And what that can sometimes be is a bit of a defensive culture. The best civil servants I know, they know how to stick their neck out, but they also know when to be careful. Just knowing when, when to duck and dive, I think, is a key key element. There is more on mastery. There's, there's a more formal mechanisms for professional development. But I think building of networks, especially across departments and across levels, I think I'm seeing more and more of that. And that's a very, very encouraging sign because, again, a lot of the key skills in civil service today are not on the job description formally. How do you actually find that? You do that through learning through peers and going through experiences and doing things like, you know, very few policies ever look back on and said, did that work? What, what worked well, well, what didn't go well? Make sure we create reflective spaces where civil servants can look back at what they've done and, and try to reflect and, and, and use that as an improvement mechanism as well. And I mean, none of this you know, involves paying them more or anything like that or improving paying conditions. And I think you obviously talked about pay, bonuses, status, et cetera, as, as these hygiene things, you know, the basics that you need to have in place. I mean, to what extent, as you look at government and civil service, and perhaps you compare it with the sort of growing trend for people who are committed in pub to public service to want to go and do it in corporations and uh, non-profits where they might, certainly in terms of the corporate side, get better deals in terms of those basic hygienes of pay and status. Um, yeah, how much is is pay the problem that is discouraging many idealistic people from really taking the path to government? And, 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 and do you think we have to fix that basic before we can get to the intrinsic uh, mastery purpose and autonomy points that you've talked about? Yeah, I think I shared in the book, Matthew, I think the research is pretty clear that if it depends on where we are relative to other professions, so it's about the relative gap. I think most people in public service will always expect some kind of discount to the private sector and practice, that's what happens. But just make sure that's manageable as well. Um, and just that you can you know, keep your family fed if you have a family, et cetera. All these things are very important. So we shouldn't under... Um, I shouldn't neglect that point. We need to constantly keep making sure that it is able to people can live sensible and decent lives on whatever their pay is, either in elected office or in 
in the civil service. Um, but I think beyond that, I mean, take a look at India, for example, where teacher pay went up and up, and Indian teachers became some of the highest paid in the world relative to capita GDP. Um, it did nothing for motivation, actually, as well. So we just can't treat pay as a silver bullet. It's good to make sure we get it right and are sensible about it. But really beyond a point, what matters more is these intrinsic factors. And most people go into public service because they want to make a difference to the world or the country. We've got to play to that and build cultures that really help them do that. And if we do that, they'll be motivated and that will lead to better uh, retention of civil servants, will lead to more people wanting to go into the profession in the first place. And you'll create a virtuous cycle and probably the public will be more open to higher salaries for public servants or MPs over time as well. So you kind of create a virtuous cycle if you get on the right the right intrinsic track. And we pick up on the teacher's point. I mean, what did you see that was most effective as you were working with Indian teachers then, these, these relatively highly paid people, many of whom weren't even turning up for work on a regular basis? How did you start to turn that round? Yeah, so we found it was really simple. About, it's about how, you know, what, what for us, we looked at how do we try and inject purpose, autonomy, and mastery into a school system? And we started by running teacher networks, you know, groups of teachers where um, 20, 25 will come together every month and go through a structured process to build their motivation, build their sense of purpose, build their sense of autonomy. They try new techniques, learn to do things, learn what's possible, but also mastery. They learn how to become better and better and do that in a very collective, fun, engaging experience. What we then learned is that actually those, those networks started to grow and grow. They went from one network in Delhi 2012 to about 8,000 a month, involving about 200,000 teachers across about 35,000 schools. As that happened, realized that actually what mattered next was the leaders of the system. So the people who manage teachers in systems, they had to buy, you know, buy into this because if not, they would always be undermined. And so we started training those people to run the networks of teachers and we started working with people, very senior people in governments and in ministries to um, oversee that and make sure it was part of their budget, part of their training system. So there was kind of role modeling happening at all levels of a system as well. Yeah, but it didn't cost very much. I think the cost per, per teacher was about 20 US dollars per year. Most of that um, was taken from the existing training budgets. It wasn't about the money. It was more, as you were saying, about building that space in and, and be willing to try new ways of doing things. And what was the evidence for you that that was working? Yes, we saw some pretty um, uh, strong evidence that um, absenteeism, effort improved quite substantially. Also, the, the relationships between teachers and children improved a lot. You know, just to, teachers knowing kids' names, engaging them better, thinking of them as individuals, and nurturing kids more, more effectively as well was something we were, mm. the things we all saw from that. Another big area of public service that's obviously got a, a lot of uh, questions being asked about the motivation and, and culture of at the moment is, is policing, and you touch on that a bit in the book. I mean, what, what needs to happen there? Yeah, so I'd argue policing. I don't know if you've seen Line of Duty or any of these. Uh, <laughs> these, these so, I mean, again, the, what, what happened, I think, is you know, we, we sort of heard about William Bratton and some of these stories in, in the U.S., and... Malcolm Gladwell popularized some of them and so on. There's a lot of truth in them. And I think data has improved things, but it is slightly given this kind of culture or created this kind of misconception that it's all about, you know, seeing a police, individual policeman as a bit of um, like pawns on a chessboard and driving them to different things. That sense of autonomy has been really heavily undermined, I think, in many regards as well. And I think it, what we need to do is rethink and remember that the policemen are human beings. They've had a lot of obviously challenges with everything Black Lives Matter to uh, the vigils last year in the UK. 
how do we try and help them see that sense of professionalism again and bring back that sense of professional dignity and motivation um, in what they do? Targets, I think what's happened is we've over-relied on targets for them. We need to remember that policing, especially, there's a lot of things that cannot be reduced to a spreadsheet. It's highly discretionary. It's highly, you know, you have to have very good judgment. It's what I call in the book a wicked profession, as in there's no easy technical solution to it. We've got to you know, help them create the conditions where they can make the right judgments at the right time and encourage them to do that and make them feel supported to do that as well. So I think we need to rethink that that approach of sort of policing by numbers a bit. Have you, again, had experiments that have worked in that respect? Doing, uh, well, I'm just starting, we're working with a group called IDFC, who I, uh, you know, Rogan very well, but been, I had a chance with him to talk to a number of senior officers um, in India, for example, and really, really dynamic um, leaders in the police force now. Take India as an example. What they um, need, I think, is, is the, the freedom now to drive change in, 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 and change culture. That's always the hardest thing. Um, and particularly how to help the constables in India, they're the front line. They often feel quite demotivated. How do you help them build trust with citizens so they're not mistrusted? And there's a genuine sense of they're being linked to their community. If we get that bit right, I think huge things can happen. And I saw some, some small examples through some of that early research work where that was possible. Now the question is, how do we try to build, scale that and try and make that more, more, more of a norm, really, as well? We're almost out of time. I just wanted to ask by if it end by asking you, um, you know, what's been the biggest change in your own life as a result of diving into this thinking about intrinsic motivation and, and you know, how, what would you advise, you know, how would you advise anyone else that wants to, to, to really reconnect with this intrinsic drive um, to do beyond reading your book? Thanks, Matthew. So one of the things I think, you know, I think one of the most fun parts for me writing the book was looking at the side of our personal lives as our lives in relationships and as parents. And uh, I'm both, I'm a sort of husband and, a, and a, a father of two young boys. And it really made me question my own assumptions. Take parenting as an example. You know, what kind of parent do I want to be my kids? How do I help them be motivated? And I'm, like many, I think, middle-class parents those days, I was guilty of pushing them from one activity, to another one homework club to a tennis coach, coaching session to a, a piano class and all this kind of uh, nonsense. And actually just remembering what matters for them is they, they love life, they love learning, and they're good people. And they have high degrees of intrinsic motivation. So I, I changed my parenting style quite substantially in, um, since writing the book to hopefully be more nurturing as a parent, to help them find what they enjoy doing, helping them build on that, and helping them nurture their purpose, autonomy, and mastery. But I think, you know, What's also been helpful is if I try to adapt some of these things to my own life, that role modeling effect, if they see me trying to do these things, that can be just as powerful. So, yeah, I think the book is not just about our work lives, those are important, but also our lives as real human beings as well. Well, thank you. Um, and one piece of advice to, to anyone that wants to start down this path of saying, okay, I've heard what, what you've got to say, I'll read the book. Are there practical steps? Yeah, I think I talk about in the book a sort of four-stage um, sort of journey you can go on, you know, as an individual to think about them. The first thing that it starts with is, is put down what I call the cost of inaction. What tends to happen is we don't articulate why the current reality, the lack of demotivation is hurting us so much. But we forget, you know, we're going to be working, let's say, 90,000 hours in our working lives on average. 
you know, if we're not motivated, if we're going in and feeling like we're drudging through the day each day, it exerts a huge emotional, social, even financial cost on all of us. Just write down what the pain feels like. And that can really inspire us to say, look, it's worth the try. It's worth taking a little bit of a risk here. It's worth taking that first small step that I, I talk about in the book. So I think, you know, sometimes we just take things for granted too much. Write down why it hurts so much, and that will give us some motivation to, to go forward. Well, on that note, thank you very much, um, Sharath Jeevan. Um, the book is Intrinsic, a manifesto to reignite uh, in a drive. And I think it's actually it's a beautifully written book as well as full of great insight. So I highly recommend it to all our listeners. And thank you for joining Books Driving Change today. This is Arabella Meyer, Editor-in-Chief of Driving Change. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, please leave us a review and rate us. And if you'd like more, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about us, please visit us at drivingchange.org and follow us on social media at underscore driving change. Until the next time, this is Driving Change.